Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. History friends, what is up? I hope you're enjoying this series and that you're ready to start something else. Something else is exactly what we'll be getting into in September when two new series start. The first is our 30 Years War series, which is available for everyone. The second is Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which will be available exclusively to $5 patrons and above. If you'd like to listen to this bad boy, which I'm really looking forward to releasing to you guys, then make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. If not, and you're just looking forward to the 30 Years War instead, or maybe you're just not really sure what you're going to listen to once this whole project is finished, because it's been your life for the past eight months, and you're starting to feel a bit crazy. Oh no, wait, that's that's me. That's who I am. Anyway, you should be looking forward to this stuff, because I've been putting an awful lot of work into it, and I know that when history friends come across something that Zach Tomley has invested far too much time into and provided far too much details to, they really tend to enjoy these things. This is a roundabout way of me saying thanks for your support and your enthusiasm over the last several months as we clearly begin to wind down this project. Before we do that, though, we have, of course, to hit the probably the most significant and infamous scene that this whole era provided. So I'm not going to go on and on this time in these introduction bits. Instead, I'm just going to get right into it. I hope you enjoy this episode, guys, and thanks again for your patience, for your enthusiasm, for your energy your nerdiness over the last eight months. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 82. Today is the 28th of June 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. So this is it. 100 years ago today, the final act of the Paris Peace Conference played itself out, as the German delegates placed their names on the dotted lines at long last... A process six months in the making and more than four years in the warring was finally over, with the building blocks of the 20th century, building blocks which would enable some of the most horrific, apocalyptic crimes in human history, were only being laid. The tragic but also fascinating part of the process is that while these peacemakers believed they were near the end of the journey, many view the journey as beginning here today. This episode is the final word on the chronological actions of the peacemakers, 
Just as their peacemaking journey ended here, so too will our narrative, but our analysis will not. We have a handful more episodes left in the bank, as well as a conclusion and epilogue, so don't hand in your Paris past to your relevant foreign office just yet. Considering the long adventure we have been on with Harold Nicholson, it seems only appropriate that we begin our narrative of this famous day from that man's perspective. Nicholson's diary for Saturday the 28th of June 1919 began as follows. La Journée de Versailles. Lunch early and leave the Hotel Majestic in a car with James Hedlam Morley. He is a historian, yet he dislikes historical occasions. Apart from that, he is a sensitive person and does not rejoice in seeing great nations humbled. I, having none of such acquirements or tendencies, am just excited. Indeed, this man, Nicholson, was travelling with James Hedlam Morley, was a historian and deserves his own miniature biography. He was a British academic and statesman of his time, graduating from Cambridge, studying in Germany under foremost German historians, and then returning to Britain with his new German wife in tow to teach ancient and Greek history at King's College London. One of Hedlam Morley's foremost tomes was a renowned English language examination of Bismarck and his role in the unification of Germany, released in 1899 and representing the first introduction many English speakers had to that formidable statesman. Considering his German connections, it's likely that Hedlam Morley was unenthusiastic about seeing his adopted home humbled, rather than nations being humbled generally. Hedlam Morley was but one of many British delegates who had recently lobbied Lloyd George to relax some of the treaty terms, but he'd been overruled in the end. Notwithstanding his friends' conflictions, Nicholson stuck with Hedlam Morley and recalled their journey, writing, There is no crowd at all until we reach the Ville de Vray. But there are people at every crossroad, waving red flags and stopping all other traffic. When we reached Versailles, the crowd thickens. The avenue up to the chateau is lined with cavalry and steel-blue helmets. The pennants of their lances flutter white and red in the sun. In the corps d'honneur, from which the captured German cannon have been tactically removed, are further troops. There are generals Pétain, Goron, Mangon, very military and orderly. Hedlam Morley and I creep out of our car hurriedly, feeling civilian and very grubby, and wholly unimportant. We hurry through the door. After their arrival, Nicholson recorded his conversation with Hedlam Morley as they absorbed the sights in front of them and as this historic scene developed in front of their eyes. Never before, since the days of Louis XIV, has Versailles been more ostentatious or more embossed. I hate Versailles. I whisper to Hedlam. You hate what? He answers, being only a trifle deaf. Versailles, I answer. Oh, he says, you mean the treaty? What treaty, I say, thinking of 1871. I do not know why I record this conversation, but I am doing this section of the diary very carefully. This treaty, he answers. Oh, I say, I see what you mean, the German treaty. And of course, it will be called not the Treaty of Paris, but the Treaty of Versailles, to all the glory of France. It is interesting that Nicholson understood that the treaty would soon be referred to as the Treaty of Versailles, rather than the German Treaty, which of course the Big Three had been calling it for the last several months. The German Treaty, as Nicholson knew, 
was far from the only treaty to be concluded in Versailles or its ramparts. The treaties of Saint-Germain and Trianon were named for their respective locations within the royal region, but only the German treaty, the main event, would acquire the moniker of Versailles. As Nicholson also understood, this was as much for the glory of France, to symbolise yet another conquering of its historical foe, as it was to denote the peace conference's main event. It is an unimportant side note in the grand scheme of the Paris Peace Conference, but like Nicholson, I also felt it was important enough to record here, since it illustrates how central the Franco-German rivalry was to this whole process. What better name for a treaty than that palace which represented one of the key pillars of that rivalry? It was here that Louis XIV had developed his plans for dividing the German princes, and there that Bismarck had proclaimed the German Empire. Now the French would proclaim their victory. Like I said in the introduction of this project many moons ago, the name Treaty of Versailles represented nothing less than an announcement from the French to the Germans, to the effect that we won this round. Indeed, if the location didn't give it away, then the scene inside the highly populated palace would have. Nicholson recorded that, We enter the Galerie de Glaces. It is divided into three sections. At the far end are the press already thickly installed. In the middle there is a horseshoe table for plenipotentiaries. In front of that, like a guillotine, is a table for the signatories. It is supposed to be raised on a dais, but if so, the dais can be but a few inches high. In the nearer distance are rows and rows of tabarets for the distinguished guests, the deputies, the senators and the members of the delegations. There must be seats for over a thousand persons. This robs the ceremony of all privilege and therefore all dignity. Clemenceau was already seated under the heavy ceiling as we arrive. He looks small and yellow. A crunched homunculus. Nicholson's account was blistering and frank but he was not the only figure present on this day a century ago. Another witness was that of Edward House, the other diarist whom we've drawn on heavily for the duration of this project. Much like Nicholson, then, I feel it's only right to refer to the President's former BFF to capture the scene. House wrote, This is the great day. I did very little in the morning. I was successful in getting practically all my secretariat, still in Paris, to Versailles to witness the ceremonies. The demand for tickets was unprecedented. Someone told me that 100,000 francs had been offered for a ticket, but this I doubt. Nearly all the delegates were seated before I arrived. Some of them started as early as 1 o'clock. I did not leave the Hotel Crayon until about 2.15 and reached my seat about 10 minutes before the Germans arrived. The arrangements for getting into the hall were badly done. The approach to Versailles was an imposing sight, as indeed was the entrance to the palace. Thousands of people lined the roadway from Paris to Versailles, increasing in number as we drew near the palace. There was a great display of cavalry with pennants flying, and upon the grand stairway which witnessed the last stand of the Swiss Guard during the French Revolution, chasseurs in gorgeous uniforms lined both sides up to the very entrance of the Salle de Glaces, where the signing took place. Balfour and I went in together, and presently were joined by Lloyd George and Sonino. I lingered behind in order not to get into the crowd that was pressing through the only door at which entrance was possible. The ceremonies lasted nearly an hour, and I shall not go into detail since it has been, and will so, be fully described. In the room at that moment were thousands of delegates, members of the press and interested civilians. 
An oft-forgotten fact about this gathering is that it contained the most powerful people in the world, and that the 20th century would perhaps never see such a gathering of its kind again. But the gathering was of course distinguished not by the presence of these powerful people, but by the less powerful who were also its focal point. Though they were its focal point, before the two German delegates, Hermann Müller, the foreign minister, and Dr. Johann Bell, the colonial secretary, arrived, the attendees were more than capable of occupying themselves. Evidently, Nicholson had arrived much earlier than House, as Nicholson was not a member of the five-man British delegation, as House was for the American, and so he had to abide by the rules of the masses and scramble for a good seat. Nicholson recorded with his usual prose the quality of the scene, where anticipation and no shortage of nerves had likely taken root. Writing, Conversation clatters out among the mixed groups around us. It is, as always, on such occasions like water running into a tin bath. I've never been able to get other people to recognise the similarity. There was a tin bath in my house in Wellington. One turned it on when one had finished and ran upstairs shouting, Bath ready to one's successor. Right ho, he would answer, and then would come the sound of water pouring into the tin bath below while he hurried into his dressing gown. It is exactly the sound of people talking in undertones in a closed room, but it is not an analogy which I can get others to accept. Nicholson's strange analogies notwithstanding, he recorded better than most the gradual filling up in the main room, where the ceremonials were to take place. People step over the Aubusson benches and stepladders to talk to friends. Meanwhile, the delegates arrive in little bunches and push up the aisle slowly. Wilson and Lloyd George are among the last. They take their seats at the central table. The table is at last full. Clemenceau glances to right and left. People sit down upon their stepladders but continue chattering. Clemenceau makes a sign to the ushers. They say, shh, shh, shh. People cease chattering and there is only the sound of occasional coughing and the dry rustle of programmes. The officials of the protocol of the foreign office move up the aisle and say, shh, shh, again. There is then an absolute hush, followed by a sharp military order. The guard Republican at the doorway flash their swords into their scabbards with a loud click. Bring in the Germans, says Clemenceau in the ensuing silence. His voice is distant but harshly penetrating. A hush follows. Through the door at the end appear two bailiffs with silver chains. They march in a single file. After them come four officers of France, Great Britain, America and Italy. And then, isolated and pitiable, come the two German delegates, Dr. Mueller and Dr. Bell. In his account, Nicholson records Clemenceau giving the order, bring in the Germans, in French. I found it interesting, but also incredibly eerie, that if one searches Clemenceau's order in French, Fater entre le Allemand, forgive me for my French pronunciation, of course, then one is greeted by scenes of the German arrival in Paris in June 1940. It seems, in other words, that foreshadowing what was to come for France a generation later was something which even the internet cannot avoid. We can only imagine how these two German delegates must have felt as they entered into hostile territory. The last time a German foreign minister had been present in a plenary conference, he had been handed the most devastating treaty a German had ever laid eyes upon. Now, after so many months of denial and defiance, the Germans were returning to sign this very document, which had only been slightly modified despite the weeks of delays. 
So how did these Germans feel as they marched towards this virtual guillotine? Similarly, perhaps, to Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau before them, they were both nervous and proud, determined not to show any signs of weakness, and greeting all scenes before them with an outward coldness, while within they were trembling wrecks. As an act of physical defiance, they had brought their pens from Germany, refusing to use French ink for the disgrace of Germany, which would surely follow. There was also a sense, though, that the thing just needed to be gotten over with so that the Germans could move on and rebuild. We should bear in mind that within Germany, politicians were impatiently waiting to see how the German people would vote in fresh elections due some time in 1920. These elections were meant to follow the establishment of the Constitution with its constituent assembly, and they were hoped by President Ebert, certainly, to signify a new beginning for German democracy. As Ebert was to learn, though, those elections would instead spell ruin for moderate German politics. Following the elections of the 6th of June 1920, the main parties of the centre-left and right would never again command a majority, and between them, the parties of moderation would claim less than half the vote. The way forward for shaky administrations and uneasy political alliances would then be paved, as parties on the extreme fringes gained at the expense of moderates, and extreme views leaked into the political discourse. The consequences of the Weimar Republic's quest to give all political views a voice, a democratic and high-minded quest for sure, was set to backfire, tragically, soon enough. But by this stage, there was a sense that Germans could not move on until the treaty was signed. The protests had been sent out, the appeals ignored, so it remained to accept the unacceptable, at least on paper. We know that in fact politicians like Ebert never accepted the treaty at face value, and until his death in 1925, Friedrich Ebert refrained from ever admitting that Germany had been defeated in the Great War. This, as we know, created its own set of toxic consequences that helped deliver the death blow to Germany's first fling with liberal social democracy. Yet it was not foresight that drove Germans onwards on the 28th of June 1919, but anger, bitterness and resignation. They would sign the treaty, but in their heart of hearts, they would not accept its tenets. There was some concern regarding the resulting stability of the arrangement then, when it was abundantly clear that the Germans were unhappy with that arrangement. Even before it collapsed, but certainly when it was looking ropey in 1931, the historian Robert C. Binkley provided the following introduction in his article, examining new light which had been shed on the Paris Peace Conference, writing, At the root of the question of the stability of the Paris settlement lays the historical problem of the original consensus out of which it arose. What parts of these treaties, which are today the judicial basis of international relations, represent a fair and free consensus of the parties which signed them? How were the innumerable, variant interests brought to agreement upon a common text? What elements of consent, of compromise or coercion, entered into the making of each detail of the settlement? By what difficult and treacherous courses did the negotiators move from agreement on general principles to the acceptance of concrete propositions? Of course, the treaty was not long to serve as the basis for international relations by 1931. In fact, it would last barely another year, and subsequent historians would remark that the Wall Street crash effectively killed it. Thus, one could argue that the Paris Peace Conference produced a peace which lasted the guts of a decade, and in Germany that this basis for peaceful relations was maintained only reluctantly 
and not with the kind of enthusiasm which modern German Democrats espouse. Notwithstanding the tragic, short shelf life of the peace, the Germans had been defeated enough to feel compelled to agree to it, and they shuffled into the room, Nicholson noted, like very much the defeated party. He wrote, The silence is terrifying. Their feet upon a strip of tin between the carpets echo hollow and duplicate. They keep their eyes fixed away from those 2,000 staring eyes and fixed upon the ceiling. They are deathly pale. They do not appear as representatives of a brutal militarism. The one is thin and pink eyelided. The second fiddle in a Brunswick orchestra. The other is moon-faced and suffering. It is all most painful. Though there was certainly pain in the air, there was also no shortage of excitement and anticipation. Here were the subjects of the last several months of work, present and supplicant, and willing to apply their names to the fruits of the Allied labours. There was a surprising lack of enthusiasm for the moment, even considering the apprehension which many delegates felt for the peace, though. Tasker Howard Bliss was merely to remark that There were too many people, a perfect crowd. While one of his biographers added to this, that the American delegates' generally unfavourable disposition towards the whole ordeal could be sensed throughout, writing. His comment on the event might well have described his reaction to the negotiations which had preceded it. Although Bliss attempted a bold face, the culmination of the German peace settlement tended to confirm the dark misgivings which had come to him with increasing frequency and intensity in the period of January to June 1919. The Treaty of Versailles included a number of provisions which seemed to Bliss to militate against the future of world peace. The severity of the German military settlement particularly alarmed him, although he had shown great anger at the concessions made to Japan and the selfish demands presented to the conference by the lesser nations. The failure of the Big Four to moderate the terms of the treaty in June, when a golden opportunity had presented itself, was a truly severe blow. Bliss wanted to go home. He had been in Europe for 18 months and he was tired. Nevertheless, he possessed sufficient stamina and a devotion to duty to endure another six months of exhausting and frustrating service in Paris. Clemenceau, perhaps uniquely distinguished among the Allied leaders as he had the role of president of the conference, continued to jolly the proceedings along. Whether his Allied counterparts liked it or not, the peacemaking process would continue. Nicholson recalled, Clemenceau at once breaks the silence. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Gentlemen, he rasps. The sessions is open. He adds a few ill-chosen words. We are here to sign the Treaty of Peace. The Germans leap up anxiously when he is finished, since they know that they are the first to sign. William Martin, as if a theatre manager, motions then petulantly to sit down again. Paul Manteau translates Clemenceau's words into English. Then St. Quentin advances towards the Germans and with the utmost dignity leads them to the little table on which the treaty is expanded. There is general tension. They sign. There is general relaxation. Conversation hums again in an undertone. The delegates stand up one by one and pass onwards to the queue which awaits by the signature table. The single file of plenipotentiaries waiting to approach the table gets thicker. It goes quickly. The officials of the Quai d'Orsay stand around, indicating places to sign, indicating procedure, blotting with neat little pads. Suddenly from outside comes the crash of guns, thundering a salute. It announces to Paris that the Treaty of Versailles has been signed by Mueller and Dr. Bell. Through the few open windows comes the sounds of distant crowds cheering hoarsely, and still the signing goes on. There is much to unpack in that scene, but something which struck me was the lack of ceremony. The Germans didn't allow their writing hand to hover anxiously over the dotted line, and they didn't glance around the room to make any defiant, dramatic speech. They didn't even seem to consider the consequences of their act. Instead, they attempted eagerly to get it done as quickly as possible. In fact, as Nicholson captured, the two Germans were so eager to be rid of the place and done with their hateful deed that they shot up out of their chairs as soon as Clemenceau had addressed them. Of course, the peacemaking process took a little longer, since the document required the signatures of all the relevant delegates, and not just the Germans. A little longer, but it didn't take that much longer. We had been warned it might last three hours, Nicholson recalled, yet almost at once it seemed that the queue was getting thin. As the individuals signed, a sense of urgency moved over the room, followed by a general hush. The session is over, Nicholson recorded Clemenceau was announcing, with not a word more or less. Nicholson added that as they sat and watched, the Germans were conducted, like prisoners from the dock, their eyes still fixed upon some point on the horizon. As first the Germans and then the Big Five all exited the building. The entire process had only taken an hour from beginning to end, following the Big Five out of the room and in a far more privileged position than Nicholson, was Edward House, who would likely have walked right in front of the foreign office clerk. When the Germans had signed and the great Allied powers had done so, the cannons began to boom, House recorded. I had a feeling of sympathy for the Germans who sat there quite stoically. It was not unlike what was done in olden times when the conqueror dragged the conquered at his chariot wheels. Was this the right way to treat one's former foe, especially in what was supposed to be a new world order? Not so, according to House, who continued, 
To my mind, it is out of keeping with the new era which we profess an ardent desire to promote. I wish it could have been more simple, and that there might have been an element of chivalry which was wholly lacking. The affair was elaborately staged, and made as humiliating to the enemy as it well could be. Nicholson's perspective was from a higher perch, as he looked down at the famous Versailles view from the wide-open window, which looked down upon the terrace where the big three were congealing. The fountains squirt vociferously, Nicholson recalled, adding, I look out over the green carpet toward the tranquil sweep of open country. The clouds, white on blue, race across the sky, and a squadron of airplanes race after them. Clemenceau emerges through the door below me. He is joined by Wilson and Lloyd George. The crowds upon the terrace burst through the cordon of troops. The top hats and uniforms of the accompanying generals are lost in a sea of gesticulation. Fortunately, it was only a privileged crowd. A platoon arrives at the double and rescues the big four. I find James Hedlam Morley standing miserably in the littered immensity of the Gallery de Glessis. We say nothing to each other. It has all been horrible. House, interestingly, was of a different opinion. To him, the scene was quite spectacular, notwithstanding the regrettable reasons why they were all present. House commented on the fountains of the famous grounds, which suggests that they really must have been a sight to behold if both Nicholson and House picked up this point. He wrote, After the signing, we went to the terrace to see the fountains, which were playing for the first time since the war began. Airplanes were in the air, guns were being fired, and the thousands surrounding Versailles made a brilliant and momentous scene. Brilliant and momentous it may have been for House, but Nicholson was thoroughly depressed by the whole experience. He spent remarkably little time examining or considering the Germans, especially in comparison to his own feelings. The German delegates were in and out with striking speed, and the whole affair was over almost as soon as the exercise of cramming everyone into the Hall of Mirrors had been accomplished. It is worth providing Nicholson's concluding thoughts on the day, and consequently his final diary entry for his account Peacemaking 1919, which we've been drawing on for this project. After getting into the stately car which had brought him to Versailles, Nicholson was seated again next to James Hedlam Morley, the historian who seemed to despise the historical significance of the moment. Perhaps Hedlam Morley could envisage the moment when history would repeat itself. Either way, Nicholson recorded his thoughts with a unique anecdote and commentary on peacemaking, writing... In the car, I told Hedlam Morley of a day, years ago, when Tom Spring Rice had dined with the Prime Minister. He was young at the time, myopic and shy. The other guests were very prosperous politicians. When the women had gone upstairs, they all took their glasses of port and bunched around the Prime Minister. Tom was left out. Opposite him was Eddie Marsh, also at a tail end. Eddie took his glass round to Tom's side of the table and sat beside him. Success, he said. It's beastly, isn't it? Hedlam Morley agreed that success, when emphasised, was very beastly indeed. This scene involving Tom Spring Rice, a veteran Anglo-Irish politician with an impressive lineage dating back to the 18th century, and Eddie Marsh, a prolific civil servant and translator, contained clear parallels to the scene which Nicholson had just witnessed. That, of course, was why it had entered his head in the first place. The success which the Allies had enjoyed must have seemed especially beastly to the Germans, who were on the receiving end of it, 
and yet to the big four, much like those prosperous politicians who crowded around the Prime Minister in Nicholson's story, they felt comforted and vindicated by this very success. Following that poetic account, the final words of Nicholson's diary mirror those of his previous efforts. Celebrations in the hotel afterwards, Nicholson recorded. We are given free champagne at the expense of the taxpayer. It is very bad champagne. Go out on the boulevards afterwards. To bed. Sick of life. After all this man had seen, all the work he had done, all the abrasive personalities he had encountered, and all the disappointments he had been forced to swallow, it is hardly disappointing that sick of life were the last three words in his diary. In fact, it is more surprising that Nicholson hung around in the Foreign Office as long as he did. Many decades later, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the by now veteran of British diplomacy was still writing on the shortcomings of Allied conferences. This time, though, his attentions were directed towards the efforts that brought the Second World War to an end. Peacemaking at Paris, Success, Failure or Farce was the name of the article which Nicholson wrote for the journal Foreign Affairs in 1947. Harold Nicholson, try as he might, seemed doomed to be forever disappointed by the inability of man to make a proper peace when he had been so capable of making a ferocious war. The peace conference was far from over with the firing of the cannons and the jubilation of the crowds, but to many citizens and statesmen alike, the Treaty of Versailles meant the end of the Great War and the chance to return to the normality of peacetime at long last. This journey was neither complete nor straightforward for a great many individuals though. Until the peace with Austria was finalised in September, Italians couldn't rest easy, nor could Hungary's neighbours until her peace was signed in July 1920. Turkey, as we have seen, frustrated initial Allied efforts to make a satisfying peace. The conflict between Turkey and the Allies dragged on until the early 1920s, as the Big Three had long since departed, and the errors in judgment that they had made were passed down to their successors. Just as these nations struggled onwards into their new regimes, so too did the Germans struggle to reconcile themselves with the hand they had been dealt. But what exactly had they been dealt? Well, the time has come to answer that question, in as effective and unintimidating a way as possible. For the remainder of the episode, then, we're going to run through the contents of the Treaty of Versailles and all of its 440 articles of glory to give you a more complete picture of what the Germans were agreeing to, but also why said treaty was required to be so flaming long in the first place. Over the last few episodes, we've alluded to this German treaty without actually laying out its contents. We have, of course, touched on the more contentious elements, such as the Rhineland, the Polish border, reparations and other issues, but we have refrained from outlining the contents of the treaty, and for several reasons. The first is that there never seemed to be a good time to engage in this exercise, as the German counter-proposals changed a few points, and made a reconsideration of the treaty necessary. The second is that I feared it would bog us down too much, and I didn't think it would add much to the narrative. I could lie and say that, third... I intentionally avoided examining the treaty because I wanted to capture what it was like for the Big Three to also not know what the treaty contained. But it would be more accurate to say that including a rundown of the treaty didn't seem to fit in any of the episodes I had released until now. You've seen the Germans sign on the dotted line, so let's investigate now what exactly it was that they signed. 
Something you should know first and foremost is that the treaty was divided up into parts. Part 1 of the treaty opened up with an introduction to the League of Nations and the role that the League would play in resolving disputes. This is significant because it demonstrated Allied regard for that new institution by putting it first. It is also significant that the League, and the 26 articles discussing it in Part 1, are enshrined within the Treaty of Versailles. This meant that to object to the League would mean objecting to the Treaty, but again, it also meant that to signify your opposition to the principle of the League of Nations, you'd have to oppose the Treaty of Versailles as a whole, even if you only were opposed to the League on its own. Previous efforts to separate the League from the Treaty had failed, and this was a fundamental cause for the failure of the Treaty to pass through Congress. Part 2 tackled the formidable challenge of settling Germany's borders, and in Articles 27-30 to with several miniature clauses, it detailed the geographic position of the new German Republic and what it would look like on the map of Europe. Part 3 was a more general section and examined the political clauses for Europe. In the course of Articles 31-50, to the countries of Belgium and Luxembourg were considered, as was the left bank of the Rhine and the Tsar Valley. Then, in an annex, several items like mining conditions for Germany, plebiscites and the government of the Tsar were addressed. The next part was dedicated solely to the topic of Alsace-Lorraine, and managed to squeeze a lot of detail into Articles 51-79 to that dealt with it. It was split into sections. Section 6 dealt with Austria in a single article, Section 7 with articles relating to Czechoslovakia, Section 8 with Poland, Section 9 with East Prussia, Section 10 with the District of Mamel, Section 11 with the Free City of Danzig, Section 12 examining Schleswig, Section 13 examining Heligoland, Section 14 attempted to turn back the clock in Germany's relationship with Russia, establishing in Articles 116 and 117 that the borders of Russia should be returned to that of 1914, with some exceptions. We then move to Part 4 of the Treaty, examining Germany's rights outside of Germany. First and foremost with her colonies, Section 1 of this part essentially hands these colonies back to the Allies, and in Articles 119 to 127, the future basis for Allied rule over these regions is established. In Section 2, Germany's relationship with China is addressed, and Weimar effectively renounces old treaties which Imperial Germany made with the Chinese. This is done again in Section 3 with Siam, Section 4 with Liberia, 5 with Morocco, 6 with Egypt, 7 with Turkey and Bulgaria, and then we come to Section 8, probably the most controversial, but also the most forgotten part of the treaty for Americans in particular. It is here, during Articles 156 to 158, that Germany renounces her interests on the Shantung Peninsula in favour of the Japanese. These are the fully expressed consequences of Woodrow Wilson's attempt to keep Japan on side, and they meant that this significant portion of China would not return to her government, an outcome which the Chinese delegation found, understandably, impossible to accept. Part 5 of the treaty then addressed the military and naval clauses, spanning Articles 159 to 213. There is obviously a lot of detail here, and much of it was actually established in those fervent meetings of the Supreme War Council, with input from the Big Three where necessary. We don't need to examine these details, really, because they don't concern us all that much, but you should know that everything from Germany's army size, to the amount of munitions she could produce, to the fortifications she could build, warships she could manufacture, restrictions on her air force, regulations on gun calibre, all of these points were included. 
The treaty then moved, in Part 6, to address the issue of prisoners of war, but these Articles 214 to 226 also dealt with the problem of graves, where many Allied soldiers had fallen and jurisdiction over their graves and the graves of German soldiers would have to be established. An important but also mostly forgotten quest for the sake of remembrance. Part 7 is probably the most infamous part because it addressed penalties. Article 227 established the guilt of Kaiser Wilhelm II for causing the war and proposed a judicial council consisting of the five powers which would be created. A humble request was sent to the Netherlands to give up their exiled Kaiser as well. This was a far weaker version of the message which the Allied leaders had imagined a few weeks before, where it was insisted that the Dutch would not be allowed to stand in the way of peace. Articles 228 to 230 added further weight to the German guilt and compelled the German government to hand over all relevant documentation. Then in part 8, arguably the most controversial aspects of the treaty were delved into as reparations were examined. This included the most difficult articles for the Germans, Articles 227 to 231, where war guilt and indemnity were established for posterity, even though we know by now that the true Allied mission was simply to justify its quest for reparations by blaming Germany for the damage. So Articles 231 to 247 addressed the extent of what Germany owed, and brought forward everything from submarine cables to compensation for Belgian and French territories, to reparations for the Alsatians, to the surrender of produced goods like dyes to make good these debts. Part 9 examined the financial clauses, Part 10 the economic clauses, and it wasn't until Article 312 that the full extent of what Germany owed was fully expressed. This process took the longest because it was felt to be arguably the most important task of the treaty, to state for the record what Germany owed to the Allies and how she would pay the debt. The full range of Germany's debt, detailed in several annexes and appendices, remind us exactly why the Germans were so disturbed when they first read the treaty. Having originally been told that there would be no such costs, the Germans found that at least a fifth of the treaty was geared towards ensuring that the Germans paid up. Part 11 examined aerial navigation, and Part 12 addressed the issues of ports, waterways and railways. Ideas like the freedom of navigation were laid down, as were notions of aid that the Germans were to give to the Poles, for example, in making their railways adhere to certain standards. Having lived under empires for so long, much of the transportation networks of East and Central Europe didn't make sense for the new nation-states, and the infrastructure had to be reconsidered because of this. Here also, navigation along the Elbe, Oder and Neumann rivers were established with the intention of demilitarising them and opening them up to the world's trade. The rivers Danube, Rhine and Moselle were dealt with individually with the same purpose in mind, so that by Article 427, everything from the rolling stock of railways to the use of free ports by Czechoslovakia to the fair use of the Kiel Canal were all addressed. Nearing the end of the treaty now, Part 13 reminded us about the International Labour Organisation, an item which we've mostly glossed over since it's outside of my general interest and doesn't really add anything to our narrative, but to be brief, it compelled all states to treat their labour forces fairly and justly. Interestingly, this part merely referred to the constitution of that International Labour Organisation and didn't specify any articles before moving on to the more significant and contentious Part 14 or the occupation of the Rhineland for a 15-year period, and Germany's renouncing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, 
were set down in Articles 428 to 433. Finally, in Part 15, the final Articles were tasked with compelling Germany, essentially, to really commit to the peace and any peace made with its former enemies. To give you an idea of what this looked like, I'm going to quote from Article 434, which read as follows. Germany undertakes to recognise the full force of the treaties of peace and additional conventions, which may be included by the Allied and Associated Powers, with the powers who fought on the side of Germany, and to recognise whatever dispositions may be made concerning the territories of the former Austro-Hungarian monarchy, of the Kingdom of Bulgaria and of the Ottoman Empire, and to recognise the new states within their frontiers as they are laid down. This was the gist of the commitment in the remaining six articles, minor items like Swiss relations, French agreements with Monaco, and Germany's Christian missions were then confirmed. Finally, it was outlined how Germany would ratify the treaty, that it would be officially communicated in English and French, and that the high contracting parties, in other words the Big Five and their associates, would also ratify it. A few final notes were added in on the 28th of June 1919, to the effect that any final issues which had been updated, such as news on commissions for relevant topics that had been recently appointed, were also inserted. And so, the Treaty of Versailles ended, and German delegates Hermann Müller and Johann Bell affixed their signatures to the end of this long document. At nearly 200 pages and 440 articles, it is hardly any wonder that this treaty caused such an outcry when it was first read by the Germans. It is also little wonder that the Big Three never bothered to read it all the way through, considering how long it's taken us to even skim through its outline. Notwithstanding its contents, the justice of the individual terms, or the wisdom in the inclusion of certain points, the German delegates had, for better or worse, signed on the dotted line, on this day, a century ago. No matter what the Germans or the Allies might proclaim to be their version of the truth, nobody could deny that by the definition of international law, with this signing of this treaty, the German war, at long last, was officially over. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.